We all know life is unfair. Some of us suffer more than others. Some of us endure more trials than others. Sometimes these trials are temptations that are so persuasive they get us into trouble. James has said that these temptations test our faithfulness, and as a result, we should learn endurance and eventually become mature. Where do these trials come from? Is this God's way of pushing us into maturity? Well, not exactly, says James. The bottom line, sometimes we are our own worst enemy, but we should learn from our mistakes. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Welcome back to The Way Podcast here on the Ephesus School. I'm your host, Father Dustin Lyon. As you know, we've been going through the book of James, though not very quickly, but that's okay. We can take our time. We have no time restraints here. Over the past couple of podcasts, we've gone from James chapter 1, verse 1, through James verse 11. So here, let's dig in with verse 12 of chapter 1. James says, How blissful the man who endures trial, because... Having become proven, he will receive the crown of life that he has promised to those who love him. Now that translation comes from David Bentley Hart in his New Testament published by Yale University Press. The New Revised Standard Version has a slightly different translation, so let me read that one to you. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation... Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, I want you to notice the differences in these two translations. One uses the word temptation. The other uses the word trial. How blissful is the man who endures trial? And then there's a difference in the clarity of who is giving the crowns, or at least who has promised the crowns. The David Bentley Hart translation just says, He has promised. And the New Revised Standard Version says, The Lord has promised. Well, this gets to the heart of Bible study. Digging into the text to see what it's actually saying, what it means. This is also a very good example of why one should learn the original languages. Why one should learn Greek, in this case, to see what the original text says. Well, let's start with who is making the promise. Is it the Lord who's promising the crowns? Well, obviously, yes, because that's the context of what James is talking about, that the crowns that are promised are promised by God, the Lord. So why would David Bentley Hart leave that out of his translation? Why would he just say he will receive the crown of life that he has promised? Well, that's literally what the Greek says. The word Lord there is not included in the original text. It's not there. The translators of the New Revised Standard Version have inserted the Lord simply to make it more clear. And in this case, I don't think it throws us off track. 
But I think it should be an eye-opener for all of us. When we're reading Scripture and we're reading a translation, we should always be aware of the translator. Because the translator can insert words here and there that aren't found in the original text. And this becomes problematic, especially when we create theology from translations. Because if the translation is wrong, or points us in the wrong direction, we could come up with bad theology. As I said, in this case, I don't think we have to worry about that. But I want to use that as an example of how we should always take Bible study very seriously. And we should always consult multiple translations, if we can't read the original language, or take the extra effort to start learning Greek and Hebrew so that we can have access to that original text and not be misled. The other difference here is the idea of temptation or trial. Which one is more correct? Which has the better translation? Well, in Greek, the word is perasmos, which is the same word that's used in the Lord's Prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That word temptation there is perasmos. And some people have translated it as, and do not lead us to trial. I think trial here is probably the better word, rather than temptation. And here's why. I think the context that James has in mind is an actual trial, a producing of evidence. As you know, in a court trial, evidence is produced to try to show that you're innocent or guilty. And you have to stand the testing of that evidence. And so the idea is that you have to endure this trial, this evidence that's produced about you. It kind of proves your character, if you want to think about it that way, or proves whether you did or did not do something. And here James is saying, how blissful is the man who endures the trial. So it's almost as if there is evidence that's being produced to try to show him guilty, and he has to endure that. There's some sort of endurance here, withstanding this evidence. And we'll get into that here in a second, how as Christians we can endure this trial. And it has to do with Orthodox fasting. But before we move on to that, I also want to pick apart this other part of verse 12. And here the translations differ again. So David Bentley Hart says, How blissful the man who endures trial because, having become proven, he will receive the crown of life. So he uses the word, having become proven. What does he mean there? Now compare this with the New Revised Standard Version, which says, such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown. Stood the test or having been proven. Now those are two different concepts. Although they may mean slightly the same thing, what does the Greek actually say? Well, again, David Bentley Hart has the more wooden translation. In other words, he's translated it more exactly like the Greek. And the Greek word here for that proven is dokimos. And it literally means approved or accepted. And it relates especially in Greek to coins, to money. Why would James use this word? What does this have to do with trials? How can one be accepted in the sense of coins and money? That doesn't make any sense. In the ancient world, money was metal coins. 
they didn't have paper money like we do today. If you did business and you used money instead of the bartering system, you used metal coins. And the way these coins were made is they would take the, the heated metal, which was essentially a liquid once it was heated, and they would pour it into a mold. And the mold would produce the coin. But the edges would be rough as a result of the mold. We're used to this with plastic toys, right? You can see where a mold came together to create a plastic toy, and sometimes you can see the seam. And what people would do is they would shave that seam off and kind of make it nice and smooth. Well, you could take advantage of the soft metal, and you can shave more metal off and make the coin worth less. But in the ancient world, the weight of the metal was important. And if someone had a coin that said it was worth 10 cents, but they had shaved more off, that coin actually was reduced in value. But if you took it at face value, you could be in trouble. And so there were people who took advantage of the system, shave off some of the metal and make the coin lighter in weight and thus actually worth less, but then pass it off as a coin worth its face value. And those who didn't do that were men of honor. They actually used the full genuine weight of the coin. They didn't shave off that extra. And these men were called dokimos, or approved. They were men who put only genuine full-weighted money into circulation. So they were people of integrity. When James says, How blissful the man who endures trial, because having become proven, he's referring to those men of honor, especially in ancient Athens, which is where this idea comes from. He's referring to those men as a way of showing how they endured the temptation or the trial. And as a result, he says that they will receive the crown of life that has been promised to them. Now, at this point, James has also worked his way into a corner. So previously, James has said that testing is a testing of our faith or loyalty, and that this in produces endurance, and this endurance produces maturity. So he's probably anticipating his critics with this next verse. So his critics are probably saying, Oh, James, really? There's a testing of our faithfulness? So does this mean that God tests us? And when we endure these trials, which often comes in the form of suffering and pain, something that we have to overcome, and that's not always easy, is that from God? Is it God who's doing these things? And if it is God, and these things do produce pain and suffering and trials, does that mean God is the source of evil in the world? James is probably anticipating this sort of critique. So he goes on with verse 15, and he says, Let no one who is being tempted say, I am being tempted by God. For God is incapable of temptation by evil things, and himself tempts no one. But everyone is tempted by his own desire, being drawn away and enticed. This desire, having conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin fully grown bears death as its offspring. Do not go astray, my beloved brothers, or beloved brothers and sisters. So James's answer is no. These tests, these trials, do not come from God. They come from our own desires. 
Now, what does he mean by desires? I think he means the same thing as when the Orthodox talk about the passions. So what are the passions? These are forces, perhaps they're forces inside of us, that control how we act. But the good news is, at least according to Orthodox teaching, is that we can learn to direct these passions in particular healthy ways. But in order to do that, we have to first gain control of them. So these passions that I'm talking about can be a lot of different things. A passion can be anger, or it can be hunger, or it can be love. All of these sorts of things are passions. And this is what fasting is about. Fasting is about getting control over this desire, as James puts it, so that we can direct it for good things. The fasting rule in the Orthodox Church is that we shouldn't eat any meat, wine, dairy, or oil. And in fact, if you're really strict, it also includes the marriage bed. We refrain from the marriage bed during fasting periods as well. It's very easy to reduce to a rule that dictates what we can and can't eat. During fast, we just don't eat that. The idea, however, is that fasting actually should be limiting what we eat. In other words, we should be eating much more simply. Now today, in our modern society, what we often do is we replace meat with other things. We have the Impossible Burger, for example. We can continue to eat what we want, and we forget that the idea of fasting is to make things a little more simple. And when we make our meals simpler, it may mean we go a little bit hungry. The idea is that we learn to control our stomachs during a fast. We don't just give in to the pleasure of eating. We have to control our desire. And if we can learn to control our stomachs, then possibly we can take what we've learned into other areas of our life as well. We can control other passions or desires. We can learn to control how much social media we consume. We can learn to control our anger. We can learn to control those things to which we are addicted. So the idea of fasting is that we learn to control these desires and we conquer them. Because if we don't, these desires enslave us. If we give in to our desire for hunger, it means we're not truly free. We have to eat because our desire of hunger is saying we have to eat. If we can't control our anger, we will be controlled by it instead and continually devouring our neighbors. If we can't control our addiction to social media, it will control us. We will have no freedom but to keep scrolling in our Facebook feeds. So the idea of fasting is to learn to control these sorts of things. This is an ascetic lifestyle. To be an ascetic is not just for the monastics, for monks and nuns, but it is for every Christian. And what James is saying is, we will have desires in life. This world is broken and fallen, and those sorts of desires will come about. And they come about from us. We are our own worst enemy. We produce our own temptations, our own desires. And what James is saying is, instead of looking at them as bad things, we should learn from them. 
just like the fast teaches us how to control our hunger, learning to control these desires so that they produce endurance and then maturity is a way of getting control of the desires and pointing them in a healthy direction so that we can become better Christians and walk the way. James ends his idea not only by arguing that these desires don't come from God, but they come from us, but also that these desires, if we don't get a hold of them, lead to dire consequences. So he says, this desire, having conceived, gives birth to sin. And here we've got kind of a biological image that he's giving us, having conceived and giving birth. But it doesn't just give birth to sin. It says, the sin fully grown bears death as its offspring. So it's not just a matter of what sort of life we live. Will we continue to eat what we want? Will we continue to be angry at others? Will we continue to scroll on our Facebook feeds? But he says, this actually leads to death, away from life. Now remember, previously he had said, the man who endures the trial, having been proven, will receive the crown of life that he has promised to those who love him. So to walk the way is not to give in to these desires. And here the distinction couldn't be more clear. One leads to life, and the other to death. And so James encourages us, do not go astray, my beloved brothers. We are to walk the way. We are to use our passions, our desires, in a way that makes us stronger, in a way that produces endurance and produces mature Christians. Because if we don't, then there's no life. It leads to death. So my prayer for all of you, brothers and sisters, is that instead of seeing these trials as obstacles that keep you down, use them as opportunities to grow and mature in your Christian walk so that you can continue on the way that leads to life. God bless you.